Hi, and welcome to Fido, an audio adventure into fantasy, folklore, and fairy tales. I'm John, your host, and thanks for dropping in. I think it's about time that we add to the continuing story of King Arthur. This time, we're taking a look at another one of Arthur's supporting cast, one of Arthur's dearest friends, one of his closest allies, his mightiest knight, and also Arthur's most treacherous blind spot, Sir Launcelot. I'll tell you more about him right after the tale. And now, as retold in 1920 by Beatrice Clay in Stories from Le Morte d'Arthur and the Mabinogian, Sir Launcelot du Lac and the Adventure of the Chapel Perilous. Now, as time passed, King Arthur gathered into his order of the round table knights whose peers shall never be found in any age, and foremost amongst them all was Sir Launcelot du Lac. Such was his strength that none against whom he laid lance in rest could keep the saddle, and no shield was proof against his sword dint. But for his courtesy, even more than for his courage and strength, Sir Launcelot was famed far and near. Gentle he was, and ever the first to rejoice in the renown of another, and in the jousts he would avoid encounter with the young and untried knight, letting him pass to gain glory if he might. It would take a great book to record all the famous deeds of Sir Launcelot and all his adventures. He was of Gaul, for his father, King Ban, ruled over Benwick, and some say that his first name was Galahad, and that he was named Launcelot du Lac by the Lady of the Lake, who reared him when his mother died. Early he won renown by delivering his father's people from the grim King Claudus, who for more than twenty years had laid waste to the fair land of Benwick. Then, when there was peace in his own land, he passed into Britain, to Arthur's court, where the king received him gladly, and made him knight of the round table and took him for his trustiest friend. And so it was that when Guinevere was to be brought to Canterbury to be married to the king, Launcelot was chief of the knights sent to wait upon her. And of this came the sorrow of later days. For from the moment he saw her, Sir Launcelot loved Guinevere, for her sake remaining wifeless all his days, and in all things being her faithful knight. But busybodies and mischief-makers spoke evil of Sir Launcelot and the Queen, and from their talk came the undoing of the King and the downfall of his great work. But that was after long years, and after many true knights had lived their lives, honoring the King and Queen, and doing great deeds, whereby the fame of Arthur and his order passed through all the world. Now on a day, as he rode through the forest, Sir Launcelot met a damsel weeping bitterly, and seeing him, she cried, Stay, Sir Knight, by your knighthood I require you to aid me in my distress. Immediately Sir Launcelot checked his horse, and asked in what she needed his service. Sir, said the maiden, my brother lies at the point of death, for this day he fought with the stout knight Sir Gilbert, and sorely they wounded each other, and a wise woman, a sorceress, has said that nothing may staunch my brother's wounds unless they be searched with the sword and bound up with a piece of cloth from the body of the wounded knight who lies in the ruined chapel hard by. And well I know you, my lord Sir Launcelot, and that, if ye will not help me, none may. Tell me your brother's name, said Sir Launcelot. Sir Meliot de Logris, answered the damsel. A knight of our round table, said Sir Launcelot. 
the more I am bound to your service. Only tell me, gentle damsel, where I may find this chapel perilous. So she directed him, and riding through the forest byways, Sir Launcelot came presently upon a little ruined chapel, standing in the midst of a churchyard, where the tombs showed broken and neglected under the dark yews. In front of the porch Sir Launcelot paused and looked, for thereon hung, upside down, dishonored, the shield of many a good knight whom Sir Launcelot had known. As he stood wondering, suddenly there pressed upon him from all sides thirty stout knights, all giants and fully armed, their drawn swords in their hands and their shields advanced. With threatening looks they spoke to him, saying, Sir Launcelot, it were well ye turned back before evil befell you. But Sir Launcelot, though he feared to have to do with thirty such warriors, answered boldly, I turn not back for high words. Make them good by your deeds. Then he rode upon them fiercely, whereupon instantly they scattered and disappeared, and sword in hand, Sir Launcelot entered the little chapel. All was dark within, save that a little lamp hung from the roof, and by its dim light he could just espy on a bier before the altar there lay, stark and cold, a knight sheathed in armor, and drawing nearer, Sir Launcelot saw that the dead man lay on a blood-stained mantle, his naked sword by his side, but that his left hand had been lopped off at the wrist by a mighty sword-cut. Then Sir Launcelot boldly seized the sword, and with it cut off a piece of the bloody mantle. Immediately the earth shook, and the walls of the chapel rocked, and in fear Sir Launcelot turned to go. But as he would have left the chapel, there stood before him in the doorway a lady, fair to look upon and beautifully arrayed, who gazed earnestly upon him and said, Sir Knight, put away from you that sword, lest it be your death. But Sir Launcelot answered her, Lady, what I have said I do, and what I have won I keep. It is well, said the lady, had ye cast away the sword, your life days were done, and now I make but one request. Kiss me once. That may I not do, said Sir Launcelot. Then, said the lady, go your way, Launcelot, ye have won, and I have lost. Know that had ye kissed me, your dead body had lain even now on the altar bier. For much have I desired to win you, and to entrap you. I ordained this chapel. Many a night have I taken, and once Sir Gawain himself hardly escaped. But he fought with Sir Gilbert, and lopped off his hand, and so got away. Fare ye well. It is plain to see that none but Our Lady, Queen Guinevere, may have your services. With that she vanished from his sight. So Sir Launcelot mounted his horse, and rode away from that evil place till he met Sir Meliot's sister, who led him to her brother where he lay, pale as the earth, and bleeding fast. And when he saw Sir Launcelot, he would have risen to greet him, but his strength failed him, and he fell back on his couch. Sir Launcelot searched his wounds with the sword, and bound them up with the blood-stained cloth, and immediately Sir Meliot was sound and well, and greatly he rejoiced. Then Sir Meliot and his sister begged Sir Launcelot to stay and rest, but he departed on his adventures, bidding them farewell until he should meet them again at Arthur's court. And as for the sorceress of the Chapel Perilous, it is said that she died of grief that all her charms had failed to win for her the good knight, Sir Launcelot. Now, the first thing you might notice is that I'm calling him Launcelot, not Lancelot. 
In the Beatrice Clay retellings, as in La Morte d'Arthur, it's spelled that way, but later spellings, of course, drop the U, leaving it to appear as Lancelot. I found that there are several ways that people tend to pronounce it, including Launcelot and Lancelot, and I even found Launcelot. But I couldn't find a truly authoritative source, and so I defaulted to the classic British pronunciation. I mean, Arthur was, and perhaps will someday again be, the King of the Britons. The name and character of Launcelot du Lac may come from an old Welsh folk character, or it might be Germanic, or it could be French by way of Latin. Basically, it's difficult to say exactly where the name comes from, but it could mean anything from Allen of the Lot River to Servant. The convoluted possibilities are endless, and if you want to try to make heads or tails, there's quite a bit of theoretical information out there. Also, as one point of clarification, we're told that Launcelot's original name might have been Galahad, but it was changed. Later, Launcelot's son would be named Galahad, and he's the one you may have heard of. One of the major players in the quest for the Holy Grail. We'll get there. Dulac, of course, means of the lake, and this time is in reference to the fact that Launcelot is said to have been partially raised by the Lady of the Lake herself. Personally, when I was a kid, I just assumed his name meant exactly what it sounded like. He was a knight, and what do knights do? They lance. A lot. So what you heard here was actually two of the segments on Launcelot in Beatrice Clay's book. His introduction is so short that I decided to add one of the stories onto it, that of the Chapel Perilous. Just as with Arthur, you can see that the main focus of these tales is to highlight the legendary virtues of knighthood. We see clearly how honorable, how stalwart, and how mighty Launcelot is, as well as how pure and incorruptible he is by the wiles of the occasional errant sorceress. This sort of over-the-top tale of knighthood in all its purity and nobility was a kind of fad, it seems. This idealized version of the medieval knight doesn't really reflect the actual historic counterparts. It's a storytelling method that we still use today, if you think about it. Would an episode of CSI really be as interesting if it were completely accurate? Probably not. And let me tell you, computer hacking is nowhere near as dynamic and slick as it is portrayed. And so the same thing happens with these stories. But the interesting thing about Launcelot is that he is a hero with a serious character flaw. He is deeply in love with the wife of his brother-in-arms and his king, and he ultimately acts on it, and it is Arthur's undoing. We'll get to that too. But the point is that Launcelot is a part of this idealized story, and while he's not the antagonist ultimately, he is a well-developed and flawed character. And I think that does a lot to make him as compelling, if not more so, than Arthur himself, from a story point of view. One of my favorite adaptations of this story, say what you will about the movie's quality, is First Night with Sean Connery, Julia Ormond, and Richard Gere. Personally, I think it does a decent job of hitting the high points. It's dramatic and maybe a little over the top, but like we just said, that's really what these stories were. I think whether you like the movie hinges almost entirely on whether you like Sean Connery or you don't, but I think that's the case with anything he shows up in. 
because he doesn't really act, does he? He's just kind of Sean Connery. But I digress. There's more to come on Lancelot. I haven't really decided how to proceed with the Arthurian episodes once I've laid the groundwork, but we'll see how it progresses. I hope you're enjoying them. Now, if you're enjoying Fido, then you should definitely subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so you don't miss an episode. You can also go to FidoPodcast.com and listen on any device. Make sure and share Fido with your friends and family if you like what you're hearing. Word of mouth is my best advertisement. Don't forget to leave me a comment or a question, and I might be able to read them on the air. I love hearing from my listeners. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Fado Podcast, and if you would like to support the show more directly, you can become a patron. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. If you join, you'll get a personal handwritten thank you from me in the mail, as well as a Fado sticker. Also, you'll get a mention here on the show. I have a question this week from listener and patron Justin Strawn, who asks, Is there a significance of the giantess never eating the children but hiding them like in Jack and the Beanstalk and the Little Thumb Tales? That's a good question, and it has kind of crossed my mind before. If you read through enough of these European fairy tales, you'll definitely notice some patterns. The wicked stepmother, the remarried widower, and the sympathetic wife of a giant or ogre or other enemy do show up often. I think some of that has to do with the fact that these tales were orally transmitted until people like the Grimm's wrote them down. They likely blended and were adapted to suit the desires of the teller, and patterns make things easy to remember. It's possible, and even probable, that these stories are related to one another enough that these similarities just show up. You have to wonder, though, where the idea of the helpful wife of the ogre comes from to begin with. Now, there may be some kind of bigger picture that I can't really see, and there's probably some scholar that will understand completely and may have a better answer. But from my possibly too optimistic point of view, could it be as easy as a way to show that not everyone is out to eat you? That in a dangerous world, there are still people who can help you. It's interesting, too, because so often the stepmother or wife is a kind of antagonist to the hero, but certainly not in these cases. Thank you for the question, Justin. I really appreciate it. Now that brings us to the end of Season 2, Episode 3. Watch for Episode 4, coming out on March 7th. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you once upon a next time.